Welcome to A Brew and a Biscuit, a podcast for those who want to live a more intentional life and take a different path. I'm your host, Nicolette LaFonseca. start this episode I want to thank everyone for listening so far. I really feel like I want to have a celebratory launch so what I've done is I've put together a beautiful wicker picnic hamper filled with luxury hot chocolate, coffee, tea, herbal tea, biscuits, uh, chocolate, well, it's a brew and a biscuit after all, a recycled woolen blanket and a beautiful, it's a stunning little print that was created especially for the podcast by the very talented and all-round good egg that is Java Bear. I will link to the artist in the show notes. The hamper is actually worth over £200. To be put into the hat, all you have to do is leave a rating and a review. Then let me know that you've done so by sending a screenshot or snapping an image on your phone. You need to send it to nicolettebrewpot at gmail.com or via a DM on my Instagram, which is at archieintherug. I'll leave all these details in the show notes. This episode is such a treat. It's my first interview. Stacey and I talk about co-working, biophilic design, the circular economic model, and basically fix the world. It was so special to have her as my first guest, and I just know you will enjoy this episode. Hi, so... Stacey's here with us now and she is an award winning multi-award winning blogger and freelance writer so I'm just going to ask you to introduce yourself Stacey and let everybody know what it is that you do because you you don't just blog and write you also started a business during lockdown which is crazy so tell us about everything. (laughs) Brilliant. Thanks for having me on, Nick, to start with. I really appreciate you talking to me today. Um, So, yeah, basically, I am a freelance writer and interior design blogger. And I've been writing my blog called The Design Shepherd since 2009, which makes me feel like an absolute granny in terms of blogging. Um, And I also write for other publications and other websites all about interior design. Um, So I got into that because I was working for a trade publication um that wrote about kitchen and bathroom design but I was made redundant in 2008 just around the time of the financial crash the last financial crash um which prompted me to start a blog and I've never looked back um and yeah as you said it's gone on to win um a number of awards and is regularly ranked in the top 10 in the UK so for a blog that I started just for myself as kind of a personal diary it's um done pretty well for itself and it's it's really good it's um I always find your blog to be really professional. Oh, thank <laughs> that you. Makes sense. Yeah. Like it has it has an air of for me when I'm reading it it kind of has a foot in both camps of not being completely impersonal like a magazine would be but still giving you that sort of high-end analysis and information but still having that friendly I'm you know I'm reading a blog so I feel more connected to the writer oh yeah thank you for that for saying that because that's exactly what I wanted it to be I came from a magazine background so I wanted it to have that authority and that sort of expert sort of feel to it but at the same time I didn't want it to be exclusive because I do feel like sometimes some of the design publications that you read 
they're not very accessible for regular people who don't have a design qualification and you can end up feeling a bit excluded so from this like special club of design um, just because you've not studied it and I just absolutely didn't want my blog to be anything like that but I didn't want it to document my personal life and I've I've struggled over the years with that actually because a lot of people have asked me what my you know what's your niche and you've obviously got people who do their own home renovation, people who focus on Scandinavian design, people who focus on, I don't know, upcycling. Um, and I've never really known exactly where I fit in because I approached it as kind of like a magazine just to cover all different trends. It wasn't just what was important to me. It was just anything that I thought was great from a design perspective on, on its own merit. It wasn't my style necessarily, just that it had a great story to it. Um, so I've always struggled to, to know a little bit where I fit into the landscape. Um, but I think I'm kind of getting there on my personal journey now and sort of knowing. Yeah, knowing definitely. I really think maybe that is your unique selling point in the fact that you haven't narrowed yourself down to, like you say, upcycling or you know, granny chic or renovating your own home Mm. that is the only one that off the top of my head I can think of you and dear designer that does a similar thing and that's it really and and considering how many interior blogs are out there that's Mm. you know it's quite a good that's a niche yeah (laughs) I didn't feel like it for years but I'm starting to, to see that now and I feel a lot more confident when people ask me about my blog to actually to talk about it with some conviction which is crazy really since I've been doing it for so long yeah, own it. Uh, okay, so I know that you run this wonderful co-working space and have been, you know, present with you as a friend on on the journey to that. But can you tell everybody listening a little bit more about what inspired you to open up a co-working space and what your vision is for for that? And just tell us about um, Tribe a little bit more. Yeah, of course. So it kind of all came out of a bit of a crisis with my writing, really, because I love what I do and I love writing. But I did kind of have that feeling of, you know, am I giving enough? Am I sharing my innate talents and gifts enough? Is there something that I should be doing above this um, that would enable me to sort of give back more? And I'd got an, I got a business coach so that I could kind of try and work that out. And it, it didn't take very about a week it took for it to come out because I'd always been really interested in co-working. As soon as I heard about it as a movement about probably about a decade ago now, I just thought to myself, this is the future of work. This is the most amazing way to work that I've ever heard of. And it just really changed for me how I thought about work. And at the time, I tried to pitch articles to a lot of the the broadsheet newspapers and some of the bigger magazines about co-working. And just nobody was really interested because this was before the whole WeWork movement and the the big players coming onto the market. And so I kind of quietly had this this love of co-working in in the back of my head for years. And I tried it a couple of times, but I'd always found it to be a bit impersonal. And, you know, I'd I'd go from working from home, being a bit lonely and isolated to working in this co-working space where I felt equally alone and isolated um so I'd kind of I'd kind of forgotten about co-working for a few years because it didn't work out for me and then I just I just knew that I could do it differently and when I went fully freelance which had been my dream for like as long as I'd been writing and I thought it would be amazing to work from home it took about six months before I realized that I need interaction with other creative people to fuel my own creativity I can't sit alone at home and not see anybody day in and day out I can't have I need to have those conversations that spark ideas and get my creative juices flowing 
So it didn't take very long before I, I decided to look into co-working again around me locally. And when I looked at the options, they were just so disappointing, just so disappointing. They, they, there was nowhere that looked inspiring. Um, they all looked like a bog standard office in you know any any employer's office that you might work in in your full time job. So I thought to myself, Do you know what, in order to pay to leave my comfortable, nice house that I've you know done up how I like it and that meets my needs, I need to go somewhere that's going to be equally as nice, if not nicer. And there just wasn't anywhere around. So I just thought, well, maybe I'll set, that's set one up. That's <laughs> such an important point to, to, to hit on, though, isn't it, of um, how our, and we'll probably, we're going to talk a bit more about that, but about how your physical surroundings mm. impact on, on how you work and how you feel. And um, yeah, it's a really important point as well as the community side, yeah. which is what I was going to ask you about to, to talk a bit more because I, I found with co-working spaces, I dabbled a little bit. Mm. Um, when I lived in Paris, they had co-working spaces that families could use. Yeah. So they had a childminder there for very young ones or a play area and then a zone where you could you could work. And it was, you know, it was really progressive and it was fantastic. And then when I came back to the UK, I thought that I would do that again. And being living in a rural area, there just wasn't anything suitable Mm. there. And so I I thought I'll treat myself when he starts crash to go one day a week. And everywhere was either really, really impersonal, like you say, like I felt like I was in a library and am I typing too loud? Mm -hmm. Am I doing anything? Am I annoying everybody? Or very very like a little bit too hipster and I felt really excluded from that but what you've set up um which seems to be your passion is creating a real community so you know obviously it's not going to suit everybody because some people just want to be on their own and have that library quiet space and that's fine but for those who who want that community and a lot of creative people do because they they like to bounce off one another that's what you've created so um do you want to talk a bit more about this because one thing Mm. one of the responses you had with lockdown and moving co-working online if you could tell a bit more about that yeah of course so when I had my my crisis with writing and I was trying to think about you know the, the gifts that I've got that I could share with others I just seem to have this really weird ability to be able to connect people so if if I'm having a conversation with someone and someone will say to me, oh, I really wish I knew someone who did this or who could help me with this. I invariably always know that person. And I don't know how it comes about, but it's just a weird thing that I'm always able to do is to link people up with who they who they need to work with at that time or who they need to collaborate with. So I really wanted to bring that into a physical space. And it actually came about from from talking to you and, you know, our other friends that we talk talk to in our in our little community. And knowing the importance of having that support behind you for when you're struggling with confidence or knowing your worth or um, needing a resource or just just having having someone who's got your back, who you can ask for a bit of help and support or use their network a little bit. And I just thought if I could get the right people in the room, we could create a community of people who could all lift one another up like everybody has gifts and talents themselves. And someone else is inevitably looking for those gifts and talents. And if we could just link those people up, everybody could grow together. And so that's what I wanted for the physical space was to just bring all these people into the the vicinity where they could 
network because I think once you when you work from home networking is very limited unless you go out to networking events it can be very very difficult to to do that it networking difficult, yeah. It, yeah it's so difficult and women as women I think in business we particularly hate networking a lot of the time because the events you know you turn up and it's a lot of men in suits and it can be very intimidating um so I wanted to create an environment yeah, balancing where, those times as well yeah. because you know you know this pandemic has really put a spotlight on the on the fact that women will usually spin more plates in ho- at home than they do than their male counterparts and Absolutely. so having to have that timing of like there's children and home and oh I've got to do work but I've got to go to this event and I've got to try and be scintillating there and, yeah yeah and, and often they're a breakfast really event difficult. aren't they Yes. It'll be a breakfast networking at school drop-off time, so you can't go anyway. Um, so I really wanted to create a space where women could accidentally, secretly kind of network. Like they'd come in and book a desk and they would just naturally talk to someone else on another desk without even realising that they're actually networking because Which it just felt so takes natural. takes the pressure off, doesn't it? Totally, yeah, yeah. And I saw it happen. As soon as I opened, people just started having a chat and realised that the person across the room for them was the exact person they'd been looking for to help with x y or z in their business and it was really nice to see that and like you said during the pandemic when when we were shut people really noticed that having not having that community suddenly made them feel so isolated so we took it online eventually and it took me a while because I couldn't I couldn't get my head into the zone whilst trying to juggle everything everything to do with the pandemic it was just it was really overwhelming wasn't it so it took me a while to pivot while I watched everyone else pivot and felt like a a complete failure but we got there eventually and now we have an online version as well and people have just found it so valuable having that that community of like-minded individuals to to bounce off of and to look for for so tribe online is that something that anyone can can join do you want to tell people it's so is there like a limited limited membership or um, well, we only open the doors every quarter because we want to try and keep each intake um, relatively small just so that people can build that community. Because I think if you let too many people in, it becomes very impersonal and it almost becomes a bit too overwhelming that you don't have a chance to get to know one another. Very so we're, we're trying to, to build it gradually each quarter by introducing a new kind of cohort of people who can then mix with the existing members. And, and so that it can feel like home. We really want it to feel like a space where people feel comfortable to be vulnerable and to share their their failures their fears and, and not just shout about their successes but also to sort of shout about um, successes because as women we're not very good at doing that either we're, we're not very good at you know really celebrating our wins and being proud of what we've achieved um so we really want to create a space where people feel that it's okay to be vulnerable and you don't need to worry about being proud of yourself or you know the fear that you may be showing off because everyone's so supportive and wants you to to succeed um, and it's just a really nice feeling in the group so that's why we we wanted to grow it very so inspiring. Sort of I'm getting goose pimples just like hearing you talk about it so you must be <laughs> so happy when you're sitting in the office and those conversations are have it happening where yeah someone's connecting with someone else and there's that little like I did that I brought them together and I'm yeah. enabling <laughs> so much for for people it's, it's I quite often have to look away and <laughs> it's so lovely and it's so lovely to hear you talk about it it's really nice so the other reason I invited you to talk to me today is your other passion as well as community mm. is and I have to be really careful because even though I've heard you speak about this you're we're usually messaging each other yeah so I see it written down and I keep thinking I can't say phallic I can't say <laughs> <bio-phallic."> <laughs> 
So let's get get it out of the way now. I've said phallic and I'm going to try not to say it again. <laughs> Iophilic design. Yeah. yeah. I didn't know this was actually a word until you mentioned it. Mm. So if anyone else is like me and in the dark, please give us an overview of a biophilic design. See, I've said it correctly. Yeah. <laughs> well, it's actually, it's quite a new thing. Like even when I talk to interior designers now, most of them don't know what it is. So it's not, you know, it's no bad reflection on you. It is a very new concept. So biophilia basically comes from the two Greek words bios meaning life and philia meaning love so essentially biophilia is just a love of nature um, and biophilic design is bringing that love of nature into the built environment so as human beings we have an innate connection to nature and we always have we're surrounded by nature we've you know evolved in nature um, and nature makes us feel good that connection to nature has so many benefits for us, for our mental, physical, spiritual health and well-being. And the term was first coined back in the 60s by a social psychologist called Eric Frome. And then it was popularised in the 80s by a biologist called Edward Wilson. So as you can see, it's, it is a new concept. And then it was sort of taken on by the green buildings movement in the 90s. And it's only really in the last decade that there's been a lot more research into the, the intersection of architecture and neuroscience and we've been looking at how the built environment affects our mental health and well-being and our physical health and well-being um, so it's a really really um, it's a really important I don't want to say a trend because I, I honestly don't think it is a trend in interiors at the moment it's being presented as the next big trend but to me, it feels like it's much more than a trend. It's so much more than a trend. And I think this is a, a lifestyle. And I think it's going gonna, it's gonna to explode onto the scene. We're already seeing everybody starting to write about it. I first wrote about it a couple of years ago, because again, with the, like with the co-working, I heard the term and it was like the missing piece of the puzzle for me, because I'd been trying to work out what my personal design style was for like the best part of a decade. And I couldn't put my finger on it. And when I heard about biophilic design and what it was, I looked around my own home and I was like, oh, my goodness, this is this is my house. This is like, what this I've is, been doing. Yeah, I, I didn't even know that this was a thing. But, you know, I looked around and, yeah, there was, you know, nature all around. And I thought this is I just kind of stumbled into it because I'd been adding bits to my house and choosing colors and things that just made me feel good without even realizing that it wasn't an actual design concept. Um, so it, it is a new movement and it is going to grow exponentially, but I really do think it's here to stay. I think it's it's really fascinating because even without the design side of things, I've seen, like you say, over the past decade, such a, a movement towards looking at how nature can affect us and can impact on mm. our, our mental well-being, on our mental on our mental health. And they're doing lots of research to see that there's actual scientific evidence to show that it has an effect on our physical well-being. So, you know, the, the pheromones mm. that plants um, produce, that the, the chemicals of having our bare feet onto soil yeah. and how they actually will physically make an impact as well as psychologically mm. have an impact. So it's like a physiological and a psychological melting pot of, of wonder that, that yeah. we can benefit from as human beings. And I think... During this last year, I think why I wanted to talk about this is because everybody's been at home for a really mm. long time. We're spending a lot more time indoors and not everybody has access. I am 
really, really lucky where I live. I'm surrounded by woodland and I have a garden and an allotment. And I was really aware of the fact that so many people don't have that at all. Mm. And I think that it would, you know, this seems to be like something that where, where you can you can sort of bring that into your home. Am I correct in thinking that you can recreate those effects of having what I have if you live in an inner city? Yeah. So, because I remember when I first started working in an office, this is going back, you know, 20 years ago, temping during uni, their idea of making a healthy office was putting a cheese plant in the middle of the room to die slowly. (laughs) And and that was it. Like, it's okay, we have 20,000 computers on this floor and all these really big photocopies, but we've put this cheese plant in the middle of the room away from all the windows. You're sorted. (laughs) So tell me more about the sort of green building and how you know what what is the extra thing that they're doing other than putting you know it's not just putting house plants in your house is it no I mean I think what we need to do is is go back to before the pandemic because this like I said this has been brewing since the the 60s the 80s where we've realized the potential of nature to to aid with human-centric design and to design for our human needs Um, and we were already starting to see it mostly in commercial spaces so biophilic design has been used as a design tool in commercial spaces um, you know for a good few years now and you can see it at airports in um, shopping malls you can see it in offices in um, hotels in restaurants where they're where they're bringing nature inside and I think the reason why we've seen it in commercial spaces, um, I interviewed Oliver Heath, who is our the UK's sort of premier biophilic design expert, um, and he explained this to me really well. He said the reason why it's been used mostly, mostly for commercial spaces is because the benefits are measurable economically. Mm-hmm. So when you look at workspaces, for example, that have nature incorporated into them, you can measure the reduction in stress that the employees are feeling. That's you can amazing. measure their improvements in productivity. You can see the um, increase in job satisfaction. You can measure the reduction in absenteeism, the reduction in stress-related illnesses. And you can also measure the improvements in creativity of your employees. So all of those things, they have measurable targets that a business was probably already measuring before. They could implement the principles of biophilic design within the office space or the work environment and then they could measure the improvements so it was really easy the business case for biophilic design was very very clear and what we weren't seeing was biophilic design used in the home and the way Oliver explained it was that it's it's hard to measure happiness like how do you measure happiness in the home because you're not going to measure absenteeism you're not going to measure productivity at home because we don't have the same We don't live the same way at home as we do at work. We don't perform the same way. So we can't measure the same things. So there was never a business case for biophilic design in residential interiors. But then we've seen the pandemic come along. And as you say, we've all been we've all been restricted to our homes. And for those of us who have access to nature, I live in like deepest, deepest, darkest Devon. So literally right outside my window is like rolling hills and sheep everywhere. Um, so for me, accessing that was, was, was super easy. But if you live in an urban environment, if you live in a, you know, a city tower block, and you can't get out so easily, this pandemic has just highlighted to everyone how important connecting with nature is. I mean, the importance of that one hour daily walk was insane in that first lockdown. Do you remember like people just desperate to get out for their one hour of exercise? 
because they wanted to go and yeah, find absolutely. a park or some was, grass or something. Um, it, it, yeah, I think it tended to be in the middle of the day because obviously you'd get up and you start your day and then start to feel that lull probably because you've been cooped up. So everybody was ending up going at the same time mm. or a similar time in the middle of the day to have that connection to nature again to sort of get you through to bedtime, really. Yeah, and I think it just really shone a spotlight on it, didn't it? Because it was taken away. Like we, we've we been living as a society in this fast-paced kind of lifestyle that we've developed where you know we go to work we spend the majority of our time indoors and we come home but once that freedom was taken away and then we weren't allowed outside for more than an hour we all realized that actually having taken away our access to fresh air to natural light to um, you know the greenery that that we've just taken for granted how much that really affected us from a well-being and a mental health point of view so I think what the pandemic has done is just fast-tracked the whole movement of biophilic design by probably decades because now we're all so hyper aware of it and we were all sitting at home looking at our homes and probably the majority of us were then focusing on what we don't like about our homes because never before had we spent so much time here. We used to go out to work, maybe eat out, socialise out, and it was yeah, a place pad, for it? us <laughs> to sleep and to relax in. Yeah, but we didn't really pay too much attention to the choices that we've made, our decor choices or, you know, it was all very, it was all just, you know, fleeting decisions and that'll do and we'll stick that in there and... For most people, it suddenly became very apparent that either their home doesn't work for them, especially not the way we were using our homes during the pandemic. Um, they don't like their choices necessarily. The choices that they have made don't make them feel good. And all of that came bubbling up to the surface. And then I think the interiors industry saw a real boom during the pandemic because everyone's sitting at home shopping online to to remedy that and to find a way to make their home work for them and make them feel better. So this is this has just been a really big acceleration for for the concept of biophilic design. And I think the way that we view our homes and the way that we feel about our homes and use our homes has been changed irreversibly because of yeah, I think the way we've been forced well to live. Because, um, right at the beginning when you said that it isn't, you know, it would be presented as a trend in certain publications or people will call it a trend. But actually the way that you said it is something much deeper than that because everybody, even people who are design savvy, maybe in inverted commas, they'd say they were design savvy, they, you know, they've got the Pinterest boards and they've got their, their Instagram inspiration and they've got these beautiful homes. Maybe they were also seeing this might look beautiful, but this isn't, now that I'm in here 24 seven, I'm feeling like there's something lacking and maybe that it's that. Yeah thing of like a design trend it, it can be beautiful and it can be inspiring but is it actually nurturing you as a space mm. I think what what we've all missed we've we've really gone in heavily on the aesthetic side of it and and the functionality probably um just because they're the easiest things to identify what you want from your home but I think what we fail to take into account is the opportunity to create a holistic home and to really think about more than just our visual sense and to to make our home into a sensory experience that really draws on all of our senses, like how, you know, the sense that we have, like the, the smell, the sense that we have at home or the textures that we have at home, you know, the haptic experiences that we can have, you know, the sounds of your home. There's so many different ways that you can make a home feel better. And we, we've pretty much ignored most of those 
because we've been so caught up in the whole aesthetic experience of jumping on the next trend like what's the metal of choice at the moment what color should we redecorate with this season what, did what are the say new color of the year is yeah Oh, yeah, grey, come on. Who, like, does grey make anyone feel good? I know everybody has, you have to choose colours that resonate with you. And some people have told me that grey definitely makes them feel hey, I'm good. not buying it. I think for the... <laughs> I don't believe no, them. No, <laughs> for the majority... I think they're just hung up on trends. Like, the minute the magazines tell you that grey is the next big thing, it can be, you know, the colour is so important to how we feel in a space. And we need to be choosing colours based on how we want to feel in that space. So... Grey isn't necessarily, I mean, it's a great neutral, but does it make you feel good or does it make you feel drained and does it take your energy away? Like, we really need to think more carefully before jumping on the bandwagon and painting it because the, the magazines have said that we need to be using this colour this season. So it's about the health of How your How does home, that colour make it? us feel? Mm. Yeah, absolutely. And we don't, we do not give enough thought to that. So I'm hoping that the speed of which trends move might slow down a bit now as people are really putting more conscious decision making into the process of decorating their home and really being more mindful over the objects and the pieces that they bring into their home and making sure that those pieces make them feel good but they have longevity and they're they're pieces that they they really want to keep in their home for a reason not just because it was in a magazine. I think that's one of the reasons that I've been so inspired by this movement from hearing you speak about it because as you know my my thing is slow living but not slow as in mm. I move slowly as in I move purposefully through life and 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 very mindful yeah. of my choices and so that's my take on slow living is all about making purposeful decisions making mindful choices not having this throwaway society a trend an aesthetic, a purely aesthetic trend can encourage a throwaway society even the people Absolutely. who are all marry condoing their homes and you know had to buy into the aesthetic of but I have to have these storage boxes and I have to have this because yeah. that's what looks good on there and and you know not actually thinking about the sustainability of it which brings mm. me to there was a, a a piece you wrote and I can't remember because I read everything you've written now I can't like your mum <laughs> <laughs> I, I can't remember if it was on your blog or it was a piece that you'd written for somebody else that you sent to me about circular design and that yeah. sort of sustainability side of it and that kind of when you then started talking about biophilic design side, really mm. felt like those two things could be married up really easily. In, yeah, absolutely. Yeah. So do you want to... I think sustainability... Actually, you need to tell everyone else on circulate Because I'm just I'm <laughs> yeah, yeah. doing that in thing of like, did you not read this? Stacey wrote it two years ago. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I think sustainability has been such a hot topic for years now. And it's all it's all well and good talking about sustainability. But I think when we look at circular design, it, again, it's much deeper. It's not it's not just a trend like there's so much greenwashing and everyone talking about sustainability. But when it comes to circular design, it's more about moving from the linear system that we've got at the moment. So our economic system is very linear. So we take resources, we make stuff with it, we waste it. And then we start again. We take more resources, make more stuff, waste it. And the speed with which that happens is accelerating so much 
that you know our poor planet just can't cope with it anymore so with the circular econ- economic model what we're looking at is making the process more aligned with the process of nature so in nature if you look at nature it is a circular process so you know things grow and then they die and then they go back to the ground and it all starts again and so with the circular economic model we're looking at how can we take materials and then reuse them recycle them remanufacture them um, repurpose them all those r words and then rather than wasting them at the end how can we keep them in the value chain so instead of just you know that plastic chair goes in landfill like what can we do with that to keep that material not necessarily plastic any material to keep that material in the value chain and get it back in the cycle again and there's a lot of um really interesting designers Um, that are coming through at the moment that are really looking at that and actually one book that I would recommend looking at is by Katie Tregidham who's written about the circular economy and the the designers who are working with circular economy at the moment Um, but I definitely think that when you look at biophilic design and the circular economy for me it was obvious as well that those two things go hand in hand like sometimes I I hear about concepts or trends and in my mind this spider web just comes out and I can see how everything's interconnected this is your skill like, set you know, again of constantly making <laughs> yeah. community and making connections yeah it's just I think it's patterns I, I really like spotting patterns and when I first heard about I think I heard about biophilic design first and then circular economy. And I think it also ties in with craftsmanship because we've seen, again, Katie's written about this, like the the resurgence of craft. Now, the craft movement is really, really strong now. And we're seeing a lot of independent makers coming forward who are making things by hand. And again, I think it's because of the mindfulness of the materials that we use and the process that we use to make them. And these these. I'm going to say trends, they're not trends, but these trends that we're seeing coming through at the moment, they're definitely interlinked because a lot of craftsmanship is more sustainable. It's a much smaller scale. Pieces are made to be loved and adored and to be kept and passed down through the generations. as well. Yeah. I remember I was asked to do a research project on crafts that are dying out. Mm. And now I've, I feel like that's... A, it was that was over 15 years ago and I feel like that was a redundant piece of research because I really do feel like there's been a resurgence and and actually people taking things up and just in you know in my local area which you know is quite arty and crafty but again it is a really small section of the country I know two blacksmiths and cobblers and and people are working with things and they're they're making products that yes you probably would have to save up for but you won't buy that product again and again no and, again and you buy it because you love it to last or they're made so that they can be repaired as well which is this this other mo- movement I'm gonna instead of trend I'm gonna say yeah. this movement of repair cafes mm-hmm. and people wanting to repair things visible mending of clothes is you know that's acceptable yeah. it's like it's worn with a badge of honor yeah again. absolutely we're gonna like, see this fine I've fixed this we're gonna see this so much more and again that's the circular economy so there was recently a law passed in the European Union no idea if we'll get it here in the UK now that we are no longer in it but there was a law that it's for manufacturers that they have to enable the repair of their appliances or like machines. Yes, I see. Yeah, because that. They're, yeah. they're designed for obsolescence. Like we all know that. And, and if you try and fix it yourself, it voids your warranty or whatever. 
but I when I wrote about the um, circular economy for a magazine I interviewed um, an expert who was talking about how we're going to see the resurgence of leasing leasing things instead of buying them so already there's companies springing up in Europe where you lease your washing machine and it's the kind of thing our grandparents used to do remember like radio rentals or whatever it was I, yeah, I, yeah we used to do it I remember when I was little my mum used to go we used to go to Rumbelows and she used to pay yeah. a pound a week and it was a pound a week and that was our TV and our yeah. washing machine but we're gonna we're gonna see these kind of things coming back because of the circular economy trying to keep these appliances on these products that would they would you know just get thrown into landfill because nobody can repair them to keep them in the cycle so you know by by leasing your washing machine machine for example it takes the the onus of um what's the word I'm looking for getting you know disposing of that appliance it takes the responsibility away from the consumer and puts it back on the manufacturer so it's in their interest to take back that broken washing machine because they can remanufacture it and rent it out to someone else and you know because I don't know about you but whenever anything breaks I had my car broke and it was the gearbox and it was an automatic car and the car was fine it was perfect there was nothing wrong with it apart from this gearbox but the cost to repair it was so much more than the value of the car that we had to scrap it and it utterly broke my heart nothing wrong with the car at all um I think that's such a good notion as well and and even if you think about it from the point of view especially with electrical items and things with batteries that mining of metals and these rare earth metals these sort the mining process themselves uh, yeah is not good for the environment and everything is a finite resource so it just it just makes so much sense doesn't it it really does but don't you don't you feel like we're coming full circle because to me I look at I look at where we're at now and where we've come to and it feels like we've had all this progress and technological progress and we've urbanized and we've moved to the cities and we've done all these you know jobs that we now do we've digitalized everything and you know we've developed these new materials and certain jobs just became obsolete because of transport and yeah yeah but we are now starting to realize that none of this is good for us there's a there's a video that I I watched when I was researching biophilic design and it's haunted me ever since and it was made by Velux the window company and if you go if you google it on no not, not google it on YouTube but if you search for it on YouTube yeah be, I, I'm gonna I'm gonna give you a, a trigger warning for this one because it really it's really haunted me but um if you look on YouTube it's called the indoor generation and it's a really spooky moving piece about how we as a human society have become an indoor generation and we spend 90% of our time indoors and it tells it in a really beautiful storytelling way about how we've basically locked our children inside with like very little access to daylight and fresh air and and the detrimental effect that it has on us as human beings but that that's basically what we've done to ourselves and we've now reached this point especially with the pandemic where everyone's now wanting to move back to the country like I don't know what it was like in your area but as soon as we had the lockdown a million and one for sale signs went up all around me it's true actually houses are flown off the market houses sorry this is the train going past this is the one disturbance we have so you're always on my podcast you will always hear a train at some point it's my usp (laughs) but especially like houses that i would notice that were thinking you know they're not there's nothing wrong with them but they're not that you know idyllic country home either they were just on the market for weeks before they were just gone instantly because people just really desperate for space i 
everything. I think the whole urbanisation and industrialization and digitization of our, our society has become really dehumanising. And we didn't notice it before because we were so busy in the rat race and keeping up with trends and, you know, trying to out-earn neighbours and just the pandemic came and we all got locked down. And, and for many of us, we didn't even have jobs to do because either we had no work or we were furloughed. And it just gave us time to reassess our lives and and what we want from them and are we happy is the way we're living actually serving us is it making us feel good and for many people the answer to that was a resounding no and and people have been trying to to change how they live like I, there was a I think was it you that sent it to me there was a statistic about how many people oh, have set up me. businesses yes. In in twenty twenty yeah in twenty twenty that blew my mind. What was it something like something? It was above eighty thousand registered newly registered businesses in the UK, and that's just in the UK. And this has been a global effect on everybody. That you know, there isn't a country Mm. that has not been impacted by this. Yeah, no, and I think some of that will be necessity. Like people will have lost their jobs, and then they will have needed to start something new. But I think for many people, I've got a couple of friends who took this opportunity to really assess their life and think: Is am I living? the the way that I want to live and the answer was no and so they've set up their own business so that they can work from anywhere so that they can do their own hours that they can they can just get get out of the confines of that rat race that we've all been living in and and live in a more authentic way that really makes them feel good as a human me personally I am I describe myself as a cynical optimist because there is one part of me that has this wonderful Mm. idealized hope and then there's a a little cynicist in me that goes oh but will it happen but in the idealistic side of me sees all of these things and you know I channel my inner Stacey and I start making the connections of well people are going to start working from home because all of a sudden flexible working is something that people can you know employers can't refuse now because they've seen that they can allow that which opens up how families manage their yeah. time and not just families single people how they manage their work-life balance as well because it's important for everybody not just people with family mm. then I think well there won't be a need for as many big offices then we've got all these empty office blocks so we can fix homelessness and then I'm just going into like a, we could do so much with this we could really run with this crisis yeah yeah oh I'm the same I'm the same I I've come to the conclusion over the years because I'm exactly like you I'm a massive idealist I'm such a um you know I really try to go with optimism all the time and I quite af- often have to be brought down off that sort of like lofty cloud of, of but hope. it's fun on the lofty cloud isn't it <laughs> oh it, it so is it so is but I've I've come to realize over the years that if there's a business case for it, if someone can make money from it then it will happen and I think there is actually a really big opportunity to make money from a lot of these things. So when you look at the circular economy, and and that would do a lot towards, you know, reducing our waste and, and living more sustainably, there is a massive business case there. There's a lot of manufacturers who have all this waste, you know, the waste material that comes out of making their products. 
that can be bought by other manufacturers to make new products using that waste as their raw material. So the business case for it is there. There is money to be saved, massive amounts of money to be saved. And I think once once people can work that out, then we can start moving in the right direction. And it is, it's a shame that it has to all come down to money and economics at the end of it. That's, it does. that's where yeah. it does come. In, and that's what is so exciting is that all of these things that you're talking about, you know, companies not needing to maintain huge offices and maybe if they have a smaller office that they use that that their staff can come in on a hot desking type of thing, they they have more money then to concentrate on how how they make that environment and how healthy they make that environment. So, you know, all of these things you can think there there is a financial benefit so you can be more hopeful that it will happen. And you can see that in interiors now because everyone has jumped on the biophilic design um, bandwagon and, you know, we're seeing so many more products made from natural materials, um, you know, in earthy colour palettes that really that really reflect natural colours. We're seeing a lot of, you know, plant inspired patterns, botanical things. You know, there's, there's a big selling point there, like they're tapping into that movement and they're really going hard to sell on that. So. at the end of the day at first I was like oh god they're just treating it like a trend and it's not and no one understands that it's a much bigger thing it's more meaningful than this but I think at the end of the day if people buy into it because they think it's a trend and the byproduct of that is that it makes them feel amazing at home then that's got to be a good thing I think as well so I did a little bit of internet researching and what I noticed as well with the the biophilic design is it goes beyond the aesthetic I noticed quite a few products because I uh, earlier on in the interview you were talking about when we we lost our access to natural light and I started to think about these highly urbanized spaces you know like um Singapore and Tokyo and New York and there are going to be many there are still going to be urbanized spaces there are still going to be centers where people are living closely together they you know there's big skyscrapers and and I was noticing there was all sorts of I don't know if this is the correct term for it you can correct me if I'm wrong like smart design products yeah, yeah. So it, it's it's more than just you know bringing a load of plants inside. Um, so there's there's fourteen principles of biophilic design, and they're really academic. Like when you read them, it's kind of like what are you even talking about? But but the basic gist of it is that you're looking to get nature into the space. So things like plants, water, animals. So that could just be that you put bird feeders in your garden, so that when you're looking out the window, you can see animals. The airflow. So you want to replicate what happens in nature. So you'll get breezes occasionally, and you know, obviously opening the windows or designing a home that makes it possible to get nice breezes to to come through. So I would say think about your senses when you're thinking about how you're you're decorating your own home. So choose things made from natural materials, because a lot of the time natural materials feel nice. They, they have that texture that you'd find in nature because of and what they're, they're made sustainable from. As well. Yeah, yeah, exactly. And they, they fit into that whole circular economy. So look at choosing natural materials. So think about things like bamboo, cork, um, you know, wood, glass, terracotta, um, jute, those kind of materials. So if you're replacing rugs or furniture or whatever, try and choose things that have got a lot of texture inspired by nature. Plants is the obvious thing to do. Like when you look at a lot of the magazines at the moment, it, it's just a normal room and they just 
pile all the plants in and go buy philipsine and it's obviously so much more than plants but plants are the cheapest way that you can have the biggest impact it's a really good starting point isn't it yeah yeah if you do if you don't do anything else go for lots of plants I mean I've got a massive wall in my it's not massive it's tiny a wall in my living room that's got palm wallpaper all over it so that's another you can just easily just do one small part of your of your room in a a botanical pattern it still gives you the same feeling and if you can't keep plants alive you can you can use faux plants I interviewed a biophilic design expert whose job it was to make living walls but he said if you can't keep plants alive I'm notoriously bad at killing them and it makes me feel so guilty but you can use faux plants and it still has the same um, effect for your your well-being and your mental health as a living one that's really interesting because mm. I wouldn't have assumed that because I have a I have a north south house and I always feel really guilty that on the north side I have faux plants. Yeah, in my office I mix it up because after three days of being open they started to die. But just thinking about the, about texture and you know if you're buying even if you're just going to swap out some cushions try and think about texture and bring in more sensory experience. So you can be nice and cozy. <laughs> oh, it's been absolutely fantastic to speak to you, Stacey, on this subject. Oh, thank you for having me.